go ahead and um, open up to the session, which is begin on page 27. So this is um, this is a message that I've I've actually taught quite a few times, um, but I've modified it significantly, or um, actually in the process of modifying it to try to take uh, what was initially uh, an effort to address the fourth kingdom of Daniel, which is emphasized in Daniel chapter two as well as Daniel chapter seven. Uh, and then is really picked up again later in Revelation 12, 13, and 17, uh, really addressing the, the sort of uh, primary biblical passages that address the kingdom of the Antichrist. And walking through Scripture, trying to show that between the two primary candidates that the church has been looking to, primarily the Roman Empire uh, or the Islamic Empire, really to show that it is the Islamic Empire which fits the biblical uh, scriptural criteria far better than the Roman Empire. And uh, that's been the primary purpose in terms of why I've been approaching this passage. What I'm wanting to do now is to take it into a bit more of a historical context and to tie it into the historical continuum of uh, martyrdom down through history. And um, certainly Islam is not the only source. I mean, far and away, it's not the only source of Christian persecution or even uh, satanic uh, persecution against the people of God, against um, the covenant people of Israel. Uh, but it has certainly been one of the primary sources. So that's the uh, purpose of the session. We'll begin with Daniel chapter 2, verse 32 through 35. Now this is the section of this particular passage where a little bit of background King Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream and it deeply disturbs him and so he comes before all of his court magi his, his wise men and so forth and you know it's it's affected him emotionally to the point where he's determined to he, he tells them I need you to tell me the interpretation of the dream and so they say okay wonderful we'll tell you the interpretation of the dream and he says no 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 actually I want you to tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it means. And they're just like, you know, Lord, this is hard magic, you know, who can, you know, who can do this? And so then they, they say, well, wait a minute, we've heard about this Hebrew, Daniel, and he's particularly skilled uh, in this sort of thing, so let's call him, and sort of like, let's, let's sort of, you know, put it on him so that we don't get the axe, and, um, and let's see if he can pull this off. So, of course, Daniel comes in, he says, well, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, essentially, let me pray on it. And so give me a night. And in fact, the Lord reveals the dream to Daniel. And so this is where we pick up. Daniel has now come before King Nebuchadnezzar, again, the king of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, Babylon, Iraq, modern-day Iraq, that whole, that whole region. And Daniel's standing before the king. And so he says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor. It was standing in front of you. Its appearance was awesome. So now, as we'll see, it's a statue that's composed of various components or sections of, uh, of different forms of metal. Daniel says, the head of that statue, which was made of fine gold, so the head is made of fine gold, the breast and arms of silver, 
its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So it works down. You've got the head of gold, the chest and the arms of silver, then you have the belly and the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and then fifth, you have the feet which are a mixture of iron and clay. He says, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it crushed them. Okay, so this, this rock, that's, it doesn't really tell us where it came from, but just this rock is cut out, not with human hands. It strikes the statue quickly on the feet and then it crushes them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. So at the time that this rock strikes specifically the feet, all of the other components of the statue are all crushed at the same time. They became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. On the other hand, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So now the, the traditional view of the four empires, really the predominant position down through history, has been that the dream portrays the following four empires. The head of gold being the Babylonian Empire. Second, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is really a singular empire that was sort of com comprised of two distinct uh, ethnic peoples. And then the Grecian Empire, the Alexandrian Grecian Empire. And then the Roman Empire, the legs including the, the feet. So the legs and the feet have traditionally been interpreted as speaking of the Roman Empire. I want to walk through just a, a handful of the reasons why I believe that this simply doesn't work uh, in terms of the, the Roman identification of the fourth kingdom. I want to make it clear, I think that uh, it's quite clear, in fact it specifically says that you, O king, are the head of gold, so we know that the Babylonian empire is uh, certainly the identification of the first kingdom, and I also agree with the Medo-Persian and the Grecian, I, I really don't think there's any... Uh, argument there, but I want to challenge the identification of the fourth kingdom being the Roman Empire. <clears throat> so first, uh, C is simply to take into consideration the context and the subject matter of the dream. Now, who was the dream given to? Whose dream was it? It's King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You know, it's easy in, some, in, in the book of Daniel to go, yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, Daniel, it was Daniel's dream. No, it was, it was King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so this, is, this verse here in 37 through 40 uh, begins to really lay out the context. So we need to understand the dream was given to King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king again of ancient Mesopotamia. And Daniel says, he says, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, glory. And then he says, but after you shall arise another kingdom. He says, you're the head of gold. And then what's the context? A kingdom is going to come and conquer you. After you will come another kingdom, and then another, a third, and then finally a fourth kingdom. So the context, the point that I'm making is simply this. He's speaking of a series of empires that would succeed Nebuchadnezzar's empire. So this was a vision which was relevant to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we need to take into consideration whether or not the kingdoms that we're looking at would be relevant to him. Uh, you know, if we're talking, you know, whatever, the Ming Dynasty or some, you know, or some, you know, the British Empire, some, you know, how, what, how, how much relevance would that have to King Nebuchadnezzar? So we're, we're dealing with a very specific context. So uh, point two there, the dream was specifically given to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was concerning specifically three kingdoms that would succeed his, replace his, supplant his kingdom. Now, the Roman Empire... <clears throat> 
fulfills this requirement only partially in great, with great difficulty. And again, uh, I had some maps, so I'm going to, you know, hopefully, I don't, probably you wouldn't be able to look this up in the back of your Bibles, but, um, you know, I'm, I've sort of got this part of the world in front of me on a map, so I know a lot of people can't necessarily visualize the layout of the Middle East and Europe and so forth. But really, when we look at the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Grecian Empire, these are thoroughly Middle Eastern empires. Their heart was in the Middle East. Um, again, the, the first, the Babylonian, really being centered right there at the basin of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Then the Medo-Persian Empire, it actually shifts slightly east. And uh, we had the capitals of Ecbatana, Susa, and Persepolis. So now things had shifted slightly to the east. The um, Alexandrian Greek Empire, of course, came from the region of Greece, Macedonia, today the Balkans. And it sweeps all the way across the Middle East and completely supplants the Persian Empire. But it was still largely a Middle Eastern Empire. Yes, it began in Europe, but it swept across the Middle East. Now, the Roman Empire, unlike these other empires, was very much a European empire that extended into the Middle East. And so it's sort of like, you know, they still have Sesame Street. I mean, when I was a kid, we had the, you know, you know, which one of these kids is doing his own thing? You know, so it'd be like, you know, a kid, you know, three kids with, with a football, but then there'd be one kid swinging a bat, right? You know, which one of these kids is on his own? So as you, you know, as you put the maps up, you've got, you know, Middle Eastern Empire, Middle Eastern Empire, Middle Eastern Empire, European Empire, everything really, it just sort of shifts west, and the Roman Empire is sort of that, you know, the one kid that's doing his own thing, and there's a degree to where it comes into the Middle East, but there was actually, you know, let's say the 1500 years, depending on how you, you determine when the Roman Empire ceased to exist, let's just say it existed for roughly 1500 years, there was very, a very brief period in AD 116 under Emperor Trajan, where he wanted to sort of be the next Alexander, where he came down the Euphrates River and did conquer the ancient ruined city at the time of Babylon. But for the overwhelming majority of the Roman Empire's existence, it stayed significantly west of the city of Babylon. And, you know, what happened was Trajan came down, they conquered it, and what you had to the east at the time was called the Parthian Empire. So these were Persians. These was sort of a revived Persian Empire. And they were, they were very nomadic. And so their method uh, of waging war with the Romans was they, they would withdraw. So when the Romans came down, they didn't confront them head on. What they did is they withdrew. They just let them take the, the areas, set up their various garrisons. And then they started doing these little sneak attacks and just, you know, really... The Roman Empire could never defeat the Parthians. It's sort of almost the forgotten uh, empire in many ways. And so they drove the Romans back very quickly. It was, it was less than a year that the Roman Empire came down and took that city. Uh, in the meantime, Emperor Trajan had what most historians think was a sunstroke. And so then uh, Hadrian was the general at the time. He later became the, the emperor. He determined from that point forward, after sort of this failed Roman uh, excursion into the heart of the Middle East, and it was a clear failure. He said, never again. From now on, the Euphrates River will f forever be the greatest eastern uh, border of the Roman Empire. 
And so what, what he did is he forfeited all of what was called Armenia, which is sort of the, the uh, eastern edge of modern-day Turkey all the way into modern-day Armenia, Azerbaijan, that whole region coming down into Syria. That was the Roman province of Armenia, as well as that whole region of Babylon. And they just gave it up. They forfeited it. So sometimes as you're looking at maps, it'll say the Roman Empire at the time of its greatest extent, but it's almost a little deceptive because that whole Middle Eastern uh, leg, if you will, was very, very short-lived. So the point here is you say, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, how relevant was this little excursion of the Roman Empire? Did it crush Babylon? That's the point that I'm <clears throat> wanting to focus on. Just to expand on that, we'll look at verse 40, chapter 2, verse 40. This is uh, D <clears throat> number 1. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So the kingdom that we're trying to identify, because the scriptures don't, they never actually name it, just calls it the fourth kingdom. Now, of course, many of your chapter subheadings will say the Roman Empire. You know, so it's, you know, it's in the Bible. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to be careful. Um, but the, the, to identify, you know, this kingdom, this fourth kingdom, it is the kingdom that would crush all the others. Now, when it says all the others, what does it mean? Well, we had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Okay? Which empire, the Roman Empire or the Islamic Empire, crushed Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece? Now, again, when we compare the two, the Roman Empire, you know, you can say, well, it did technically conquer Babylon, yes, for several months. But then when we compare that to the Islamic Empire, okay, so in the 7th century, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, sort of births this new uh, monotheistic religion down in the Arabian Peninsula. And then after he dies, this, this conquest of these Arabs bursts forth out of Arabia, a thoroughly uh, Arab supremacist religious force. And it literally just crushes the entire region in a very short period of time. And, but we'll look at some of the dates as we move on. But the point is, if we're speaking of the modern-day regions of Iraq of Persia, of the, of the former Greek empire. The Islamic empire thoroughly crushed these regions, and we're just talking geography at this point, absolutely, completely, without any question. So as you're looking at these two, these two kingdoms, and you're saying, which one lies up with the scriptural criteria? The Roman empire, you go, well, sort of, maybe. You go, well, geographically, did the Roman empire crush the, the Babylonian, the Persian, and the Grecian empires. And you go, really, when you look at the maps, you go about one quarter to a third. But two-thirds are pretty much left untouched. The Roman Empire never reached those areas. The Islamic Empire, on the other hand, completely crushed all of those regions. So you're beginning to you know, look at the scriptural criteria and go, the church has always said it's the Roman Empire, and yet the Roman Empire doesn't really meet the basic scriptural requirements uh, to be that fourth kingdom. Because the fourth kingdom, by the way, is the kingdom of the Antichrist. <clears throat> so now we'll look, we've looked at the nature of the rise of the fourth kingdom. And we'll look at the nature of its demise. This is verse 34 and 35. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by hu human hands. We've already read this. It strikes the statue on the feet. Again, specifically, that's the final period 
of the uh, Antichristic Empire. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken at the same time, and it became like chaff on the summer threshing floor. So the point is this, the rock represents the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, his kingdom uh, will crush the Antichrist kingdom, but at the same time, as a direct result of the destruction of this kingdom, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece will all be destroyed at the same time. Now, you could say, well, that just simply means because every kingdom throughout the earth is going to be destroyed at that same time. Or you could say, no, it's specifically making a point here. And this is what people often do is, you know, they'll try to just sort of take a very specific statement in Scripture and just go, well, that doesn't really mean anything. This is essentially what, you know, um, what's another example? Um, you know, they'll, they'll say, some, oh, like it says all the nations around Israel. It, the, the specific word is the goyim kabib, which means the nations round about. And it's specifically the primary thrust of the Antichrist uh, gathering of the nations against Israel is coming from the goyim kabib, the nations round about. And then people will be like, yeah, but I mean, the earth is round, so really every nation's around Israel. You know, they'll kind of do that thing. And then you'll be like, and if you think about it, every nation is around every nation, you know. And so they, you, you take a verse and it just basically doesn't mean anything. Um, I, think, I think the Lord puts these things in Scripture for a purpose. So I just want to be careful that we don't just sort of dismiss that as an irrelevant statement. Now, I've got quite a bit more here in F and uh, G. I'm actually going to skip through that because uh, you can go through it and really I'm developing and arguing the case that when we walk through the various criteria as laid out uh, in Daniel chapter 2, point after point after point, we come down, whereas the Roman Empire really doesn't fit, whereas the Islamic Empire does. But I want to get on to uh, some of the more relevant uh, issues here. Uh, I would make this point that when we say that Islam, or the, 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 the religion, the kingdom, the empire of Islam, is in fact uh, that which the scriptures spoke of in terms of the last day's vessel of Satan against the world, against the people of God, against Israel, um, it, it really, this is an issue that goes back to the very Genesis, the very beginning uh, of the Bible. So Genesis 16, 11 through 12. This is <clears throat> referring to the, the, the original clash, if you will, between Ishmael and Isaac. And so the angel of the Lord is speaking to Hagar, the mother of uh, Ishmael. And he says, you're now with child, you'll have a son, you'll name him Ishmael, which means the Lord hears and then he says, for the Lord has heard your misery. And then he goes on, he says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So you have right at the beginning, you have this sort of prophetic statement where the Lord is pointing to the character of Ishmael. And he says, listen, the Lord himself prophesies and just said, his hand is going to be against all his brothers. He's going to live in hostility toward all his brothers. Everyone's hand's against him. He's going to be a man of conflict and violence, and essentially his people will be that. Now, of course, uh, what the Muslims always do is they, they, they point to this and they say, the Jews, the Jews corrupted the scriptures, and they sort of like put this little slam against us in there. They always say, you know, this was put in there by those, you know, so those filthy Jews, 
But the fact of the matter is, all you have to do is simply look at the history of Islam, and it is a history of conflict. Uh, in modern times, we simply use the word sectarian violence. You, know, you look at Iraq, the past, whatever it's been now, 12 years, it's you know, Sunni Muslims killing Shia, blowing up Shia, blowing up Sunni mosques, and in Iraq today, every day, you know, we have regular killings continuing. Sometimes, you know, it's just sort of like, ho-hum, another 80 people were just killed in Baghdad today. And, <clears throat> you know, we just ignore the fact that that's going on. Samuel Huntington is a Harvard scholar. He wrote the book, The Clash of Civilizations. And uh, he made a statement, which has come to be fairly famous. And he says, all of Islam's borders are bloody. And so are all of her innards. You know, and this is just, this really defines the essence of Islam is constantly in conflict with those around them and then uh, as well as internally. Um, but specifically here, we're referring to the, the historical conflict between the Islamic world and Israel, you know, or the people of God, if you will. So this is, the point is, this really is, this isn't just, um, this isn't simply uh, an American who's coming, who's, who's anti-Christ pointing, you know, the, the latest boogeyman of the day, sort of the, the boogeyman du jour, um, uh, you know, and just saying, well, you guys are the Antichrist. And, and this is usually what, um, do you guys like that? The, um, what would you like on that sandwich? Let me get a little boogeyman du jour, please. Um, all right. Um, but the, this is what the accusation of people who are critics of, you know, uh, apocalyptic Christians. They'll say, you guys are just, you just point to your various uh, political or theological enemies and you just recast them every few years, you know, as, the, as the, the Antichrist. That's not what this is at all. What we're talking about is a thoroughly biblically contextualized eschatology of the Antichrist, if you will. This is an issue that goes back to the very foundation of Scripture. <clears throat> Letter H, I want to elaborate a bit more on this issue of to crush. Now, we touched on the geographic crushing, if you will, of the, uh, of the fourth empire, and, and clearly the Islamic empire geographically consumed the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and the Grecian uh, empires. But I want to elaborate a little bit more on this, because you'll hear this often. They'll say, the Roman Empire, oh, it just fulfills this to a T, you know, because their armies were so fierce. They crushed rebellions and this sort of thing. But the, the, the fact is, when we actually look at the historical record, yes, the Roman uh, legions were brutal in terms of putting down rebellions. Yes, they had fierce armies. But by and large, as an empire, the Roman Empire was amazingly tolerant. It was, it was actually one of the most tolerant empires of ancient history. And so I want to expand this concept, or suggest that we expand this concept to more than just borders, but we address issues of culture and religion and languages. And so when we do that, we look at the Roman Empire, we see that the Roman Empire was specifically, one thing that it's known for is the um, development of infrastructure, the various provinces that it conquered. It delivered infrastructure, it gave them law, it gave them order, it gave them roads, aqueducts. I mean, this is, you know, this wasn't just something that just bulldozed through and crushed. It actually was an ancient nation-building uh, entity. Now, the, its purpose for doing all of this, of course, was so that there would be smooth roads to bring the taxes back to Caesar. Okay, is, this was essentially a giant revenue-collecting uh, program, is what, this is, 
essentially what empires are. You conquer people, you tax them, and then you live luxuriously back at the capital. I mean, that's, that's essentially what the Roman program was, but nevertheless, they did deliver infrastructure and this sort of thing. And you tipped your hat to Caesar, you know, you, you did the obligatory sacrifice to Caesar, you paid your taxes, and it went well with you. If you rebelled, yes, they would crush you. But this wasn't simply a bulldozer that just swept through the land and devastated everything. This is not just simply, the Roman Empire was not just a program of crushing. It was quite the opposite. So it's just a point that um, needs to be acknowledged. Now granted, you know, heavy taxation is not, you know, wonderful, but it, it certainly can get a lot worse than that is the point. <clears throat> the Islamic Empire, on the other hand, as we'll look at a bit more, fulfills the criteria, fulfills the description of being that bulldozer, of being that, that machine, that, that meat grinder, if you will, that just plows through regions and just lays them waste. And there was that revenue-collecting aspect as well, but uh, it was anything but um, you know, a developmental program. It was, it was quite the opposite. Now, uh, letter I... I want to look at Revelation 13. Now, I'm doing this with the assumption that you all are somewhat familiar with Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a parallel to Daniel 2, which is, Daniel 2, of course, is describing these various world kingdoms, these, these, um, these sort of uh, antagonistic pagan kingdoms that were constantly clashing with Israel. Daniel 7 is a parallel chapter. It's telling the same story, but now it's using the imagery of beasts. So these beasts represent kingdoms, and uh, I probably should have put a little overview of that in there, but essentially you have the lion, the leopard, uh, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And so these represent, again, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and, and Greece being the leopard. <clears throat> and so when you get to Revelation 13, and then you have the fourth beast. So the fourth beast is the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, which is the Antichrist empire. And it, it, does, it, is, it doesn't say it's a lion, it doesn't say it's a leopard, it doesn't say it's a bear. It's just a fierce, terrifying, brutal beast, undescribable, incomparable to anything that we've seen and so what's interesting is when you get to Revelation 13, 2, 2 through 4, the final antichristic empire is specifically a composite of the lion, the leopard, and the bear. It's a composite of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. It's a composite of these three Middle Eastern empires. And so if we're just looking again, if we're to combine those empires, that does not resemble the Roman Empire. It does not reflect the geography of the Roman Empire, it does reflect the geography of the Islamic Empire. So verse 2, starting with verse 2, and the beast which I saw, John the Apostle, it was like a leopard, yet its feet were like those of a bear, and its mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So Satan gives this beast his throne power and great authority. But again, we just need to highlight the fact that it is a com combination of Babylon, you know, think basically Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. This is sort of the heart of, of the, the modern nations that correlate to the heart of these ancient empires. And then I saw one of the heads of this beast, so it's a seven-headed beast, we're not going to get into all of that, but one of the heads as if it had been slain and this fatal, head, this fatal wound was healed. So this particular final beast suffers a, what appears to be a head wound, and then it comes back. 
the whole earth was amazed and it followed after the beast. They worshipped Satan because he gave his authority to the beast. Now it's amazing in modern day political, you know, correct atmosphere, you know, if I was to stand up here and say, the Allah of the Quran is Satan. You know, I mean, that's just like, no, no, you're never getting invited back to this church. But it's amazing that in Revelation 2, Jesus himself speaking, and he refers to this altar in Pergamon, uh, Pergamum, and it, which was an altar to Zeus. And he says, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. So Jesus himself referred to Zeus as Satan. This was really the, the chief pagan god of that region. And there was no political correctness where Jesus was like, well, I want to give Zeus some validity, you know. Greek paganism has its good points, you know. It was just, this is Satan, I know where you live. And, you know, again, my point here is not to bash Muslims in any way, but let's just be very clear from a biblical perspective. The God of Islam is Satan. And in, in this point here, he says, listen, when this, this empire is revived, the whole earth will be so terrified, they will worship Satan. I mean, you know, again, Satan comes in, in many disguises, and I believe that in the last days, through Islam, Satan in the past has appeared in, you know, various pagan gods that were in antagonists to the God of the Bible, to antagonists to, uh, to Yahweh, um, but in these last days, I believe he's actually tried to disguise himself as Yahweh. No, I'm the God of the Bible. You know, I'm the creator. And he's actually trying to be the God of the Bible. And it's sort of a different approach than, uh, <clears throat> than he's used down through history. And they worship the beast as well. They, they, uh, they, they essentially bow down to the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? <clears throat> so now turning to... Uh, J, and then Daniel 7, verse 7. I just want to sh pick up on the fact that in Daniel 7, this theme of crushing is reiterated yet again. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was the fourth beast. Terrifying, frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Some translations say it trampled the residue. So here's this, this beast with iron teeth. And it, you know, I mean, it's just in, in ancient times, the picture of this. And first it crushes and it devours its victims. And then just the residue that's left, it tramples it with its feet. This is the description. This is this, this bulldozer, this machine that the Lord's trying to describe that would sweep through the earth. At the, in the last days, and again, I would thoroughly uh, argue that the Roman Empire doesn't fulfill that. So now, turn to the next page, uh, page 30. Just sweep through some of the historical facts concerning the early Muslim conquests. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, he died in 632. And then his uh, general, Khalid uh, ibn Walid, um, was, was sort of the leader of the armies, and then there were the various successors. Uh, Abu Bakr was sort of the, the, the religious leader of the Muslims, but it was led by Khalid ibn uh, Walid, and he, he sweeps out of Arabia. Within two years, two years after Muhammad died, they had already reached Israel. They had already reached Palestine, and they sacked the areas from Gaza all the way down in the south to Caesarea, slaughtering 4,000 Jewish, Christian, and Samaritan uh, peasants. 
So then four years, by 636, so now just four years after the, the, I mean, this was fast. This was four years. And now, by the way, this, this information comes from the earliest Islamic sources via a book by a woman named Bat Yaor, Y-E apostrophe O-R, um, which ironically is a pseudonym. I don't know why you, if, you, if you're going to use a pseudonym, don't go with Yaor, but uh, I'm not sure what it means. Uh, but she, she truly is a, an amazing scholar. It's called The Decline of Eastern Christianity Under Islam. If you really want to dig into this a bit more, it's sort of a must-have. And she consults the, all of the earliest uh, Islamic sources, as well as Christian and Jewish sources, but it's you know, very scholarly. By 636, a third of a million Christians had been slaughtered. Okay, so now, again, in ancient times... A third of a million people in four years were completely slaughtered. This is unparalleled. Christianity had never experienced anything like this. They had experienced persecutions and so forth, but this was, this was something fully unexpected. By 642, six years later, a full million Christians had been killed. Okay, so another, two-thir- another two-thirds of a million were killed. In 643, in Tripoli... In Libya and Carthage and Tunisia, they were completely razed and all of the inhabitants were slaughtered. This wasn't just, you know, hey, pay taxes. It was a complete slaughter. And they would take the women, they would take the gold, take the treasure, and that's all it was. I mean, this wasn't like, hey, you know, the mafia's moving in, now you guys owe us a little money. It wasn't anything like that. It was a complete slaughter and just taking the plunder, the boot. I mean, these were desert pirates of the ancient world. The same year, all of the inhabitants of Pergamum and Sardis were led away in captivity. This is the heart of the ancient Christian church. Yes, the church was spreading into Europe. This is the very heart of the original early church was completely plundered. In Cyprus in 649, the islands of Kos and Rhodes, uh, 672 Crete, 674, the entire populations were either one slaughtered or enslaved. The Muslim hordes would literally besiege a city, kill all the resistors, distribute the booty, and then march an average of 30 to 50,000 women back to Mecca as slaves. And, you know, you will not hear this in the modern universities. It's thoroughly documented in their own sources. This is not, you know, some Christian polemic. And, you know, for all of the talk about how wonderfully tolerant Islam means peace and so forth, this is the very foundation of Islam. In less than one generation, the ancient heart of Christendom was completely crushed or subjugated by Islam. In 985, Barcelona was completely destroyed by fire. So now we're, you know, getting out all the way over to Spain. All of its inhabitants were slaughtered or taken prisoner. You know, this, this stuff is not talked about. The conquests have never stopped, though they've experienced long lulls. As the beast is healed and restored, the slaughtering, the conquest will begin again. And we're beginning to see that in nations like Syria. We're seeing the conquest, that uh, we're seeing the head of that beast, if you will, revived. Modern examples. In Kosovo, that's the heart, the, the heart of ancient Serbia, it's an Eastern Orthodox Christian nation, it was given to Albania. And I had pictures of, you know, the Albanians just ripping crosses off of churches, burning churches, uh, monasteries across the country. I mean, granted, you know, for, as a father of five, there's sort of a little bit of a, 
I want to be a monastic, you know, go live in a cave and just pray all day. Sounds good. But, you know, these things are just demolished, devastated, you know, across the country. Dozens and dozens of churches in the past, I don't know, it's been about 10 years now, have been wiped up. You've got these Orthodox monks that need to be escorted around in armored cars. I mean, it's the, the persecution against Christians is intense. From 2003 to 2013, the Christian population in Iraq, obviously, when war comes in, all of the moral restraint is thrown out the door, and, you know, for good or for bad, man reveals who he truly is. The Christian population dropped from 1.5 million to about 200,000. Okay, so that's 1.3 million gone. They've either been killed or fled the country. So here, you know, you had these... Uh, uh, Chaldean and, you know, Catholic and Orthodox Christians largely in Iraq. Now it's a struggling minority. These were regions that were once, again, the heart of the ancient Christian world. The beast came in, it devoured, and then in time, it begins to trample the residue. The little bit that's left, it begins to trample them. We could go on and on, talk about Bethlehem, Gaza, the decline of Christianity. In Turkey, once the heart, I mean, again, the very, this is the, the, the region of all the seven churches of, of Ephesus and uh, Antioch. <clears throat> Today, in a, in a country of 72 million Turks, you have about 5,000 evangelical Christians. Think of that number. 5,000 Christians bearing witness to Jesus in a country of 72 million. If you're a Turk, what's your chance of really hearing the gospel and having a faithful witness to that? in the year that the Muslim Brotherhood was in power in Egypt, over 50 churches were either destroyed or partially destroyed. Since 2012 in Syria, over 100 churches have been destroyed, and roughly half of the uh, Christians have fled the nation. Christianity in Syria, in Iraq, in Bethlehem, all of these places are dwindling and diminishing. There's very little left. I want to bring this to a conclusion. The Great Commission, we're all familiar with it. Matthew 28 18 through 20, Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority, this is, you know, sort of his final commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. So this is the commandment of Jesus. Go forth and proclaim the gospel. Now, so we have all the mission organizations, and they've got all the figures and the numbers. According to the Joshua Project, of the 16,500 people groups, about 7,000 are still considered unreached. So that's just, I mean, that's close to half. 7,000 are still considered unreached. There are 1.6 billion Muslims, actually 1.612 at this point. So... 84.9% of the Muslim world is considered unreached. That means 1.3 billion Muslims do not have an effective witness, the opportunity to, to hear the gospel. 1.3 billion Muslims. The point is this, is Jesus gave us a commandment to take the gospel to the unreached of the earth. The overwhelming majority of the part of the earth that's unreached is the Islamic world which also happens to be the meat grinder. Okay, are you beginning to get the point? If we're to be obedient to Jesus in these last days, 
then that means something's going to take place. And, <clears throat> and it's going to require sacrifice. That means there's one missionary to every 550, uh, uh, half, roughly half a million Muslims. 500, how would you say that? But roughly half a million Muslims, one missionary to every half a million Muslims. That's the, you know, I mean, you could go through all the statistics. We're familiar with the Great Commission, but there's also what, I, what I'm calling the Great Commission prophecy. This is part of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about the end times. He says, listen, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's not just the Great Commission. There's the prophecy where Jesus says, listen, yes, I'm commanding you to do this, but he also said, and you guys will accomplish this. Before the end comes, my people who are faithful to my commandments will fulfill the Great Commission. It's going to happen. The gospel will go forward to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, everyone's familiar with the Great Commission, but here's what I'm calling the other Great Commission. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and this is the sort of the Great Commission that no one talks about. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until the day of justice? And there was given each one a white robe and they were told just to wait a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Okay, so we, you know, missions organizations say, well, when we fulfill the Great Commission, then Jesus will return. When we reach all the peoples. But no one talks about when we fill up the number of martyrs. When the church gives the faithful witnesses according to the number that the Lord has in his mind, he says, then I'll come back. And this is, the point is this. Jesus said, you guys will fulfill the Great Commission. Where is it not being fulfilled? It's not being fulfilled in the Islamic world. At the present, the Islamic world is, the beast is rising, if you will. This, that sort of primal, early uh, violence of Islam is being revived. And the Lord's telling the church, in the midst of that, in the midst of all of these, you know, it's, it, and I don't want to give an improper picture, in the midst of that, the Lord says, I have my people amongst them. I have sincere people that are God seekers, that are crying out to God. And they, they've grown up in a world, in a culture, that does not have an effective witness of who I am. And if they heard it, they would say yes. And the Lord's telling his church to go. The point is, he's, he's saying, we're going to do it. And the end result is that <clears throat> there will be a tremendous number at the end of the age that will be slaughtered, just as our ancient brothers and sisters were in the process. And it's not glorious, it's not wonderful. I know Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, kind of looked up and the face was glowing, and he said, Thy will be done, Lord! You know, and just kind of, just these rosy pictures of martyrdom. No, this is 50,000 women being marched back to Mecca to be sex slaves for the rest of their lives. I mean, this is... This is, there's nothing on this side, on this side uh, of the pre this present age, there's nothing pretty about this. And yet this is what he's calling us to do, to bear witness to the mercy of God to sinners and to his enemies. This is the very heart of it. Let me close with this. Turn to uh, Revelation 12. 
verse 11. You have in the church today, um, particularly in the United States, the United States is clearly the most influential part of the church in the earth. You go to Africa, you know, everybody's trying to imitate the, the American TV preachers. Churches with big billboards of apostle, brother, miracle worker, you know, catalytic life coach, and you know, all this kind of stuff, and they're just trying to, to be Mr. Snazzy, just like the guy on TV, and you go, oh Lord, you know, what are we doing? Exporting the stuff all over the world. In the church today, you'll frequently hear terms like um, victorious eschatology. And you'll hear about how we are to uh, conquer the seven spheres of mountains of influence throughout the earth. Revelation 12, beginning with um, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down, but they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea. The point is this. You have this term, and, and I want to be careful, you have, you have this term, victorious eschatology. I would suggest to you that what we should be talking about is, is overcoming eschatology. And the difference between these two is this. Victorious eschatology says that with regard to the seven spheres of influence, the seven mountains, we are to conquer them for Jesus. We are to conquer for Jesus. Overcoming eschatology says that we live in an inherently wicked culture and age, and we are to be salt and light as we maintain our pilgrim stranger identity. We are aliens and strangers. We are to be positive influence to an inherently wicked culture and society. And it's not just an issue that if we just influence it enough that we can take over and redeem it, because it's an inherently wicked culture, and it will only be redeemed by destruction of fire when Jesus returns. It's not something that we can just tweak a little bit and fix. It will be redeemed when it's purged by fire. So on one side, you have victorious, which says we're to conquer. I would suggest that we're called to overcome. And what that means in the biblical terms is we overcome him by laying down our lives and saying this life is irrelevant to me because I'm bearing witness to the mercy of God. God laid down his life for us and we're doing the same thing and we're pointing to what he did and we're pointing to say, go ahead because I believe in the resurrection of the dead and you, 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 know, you can't kill me. Yes, you can kill me for a time, but I'm coming back and there's a kingdom that will be established and I'll inherit my reward. And I would invite you to be part of that kingdom. That's what we're called to do in this age. And so, you know, I, 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 and I'm not bashing anybody. I, I, I don't want to sound overly critical in any way. I'm just saying we need to, to uh, modify our language. Victorious eschatology with its emphasis on taking over versus an emphasis of the biblical pattern of overcoming. Jesus overcame the world by being overcome. And we're called to imitate him and do likewise. Amen? 
It's a very straightforward, it's a very simple, very simple message. And, and the fact of the matter is, all you have to do is look out at the earth. I mean, it's right in front of us. I mean, th- this couldn't be more simple. The Bible lays it out. It's right there. You've got, you know, in the church, you've got, uh, you know, sort of on the dispensational side, the guys that are into prophecy, they're like, oh, Islam's about to be just wiped out in the war of Gog and Magog. You know, it's just going to dry up and go away. And then in the charismatic world, they're like, we're just going to pray for the sick, and they're all just going to convert. You know, like, you know, and it's just like no one is facing the reality of this thing that's right in front of us every single day because we live over here, and it's barely touching us. But you go to just about any other part of the world, and it's not an issue that we can ignore any longer. It's, right, it's very clear, and, and in terms of how we are to respond, that's very clear as well. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you looked out across the nations. You looked out across the earth, and in your mercy, each one in this room, you looked down and you called us and you chose us and you made us your own. None of us deserved it. None of us earned it. But somehow, for some reason, you revealed yourself to us. And now we ask, Lord, that you would awaken your church in these last days to that which is clear, that which is very simple. It's not easy, but you've made it clear the road ahead. And we ask that you give us the strength to imitate you. We ask that you give us the strength and the, the clarity that's needed simply to imitate you because you're worthy. And because, Father, we know that you love those that are yet your enemies and that you laid your life down, we ask that you would give us the ability to do likewise and that you would send laborers into the harvest field. In these last days, you would call out a mighty, powerful remnant and that you would hear the cry of Ishmael and that you would awaken our hearts to hear the cry of Ishmael, the cry that you hear every day. We thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name.